0: All right, let's. Uh, Hebrews chapter 10 is where we are. And we've, we've read that already. Um, going through the four points of our mission statement. Um, our mission statement is to glorify God as Christ centered and spiritually vibrant people of biblical integrity. We looked at biblical integrity last week as the, the undergirding of, of those other two things. Christ-centered and spiritually vibrant, which if we're not, we won't glorify God. So this morning, we're going to look at what it means to be Christ-centered from Hebrews uh, chapter 10. And as we do that, um, three things that are, that are in the, the outline, but I'll repeat them again. Um, Jesus is the protector of our lives. He's the object of our confession, and He's the motivation for our fellowship but I have a problem. Actually, we all have a problem. Um, We were created for fellowship with God. And this God that we were created to have fellowship with, as we looked at last week, has very high standards. Standards that, that you and I not only Can't meet, but we don't meet. We don't want to meet. And even if you and I didn't know this book, even if we had really no clue what those standards are that God has revealed to us. You see, we live in this world enough and we know enough people and we know that as we get to know people, regardless of what their views are on life, regardless of their views about God, they are inconsistent at some point in time. We all are. In fact, we all know what it is that's wrong with humanity because whenever we're on the opposite end of someone being selfish, you and I sense that that's wrong. When someone takes advantage of us, we know deep down that's, that's not right. Something about that is wrong. When someone displays uh, some arrogant pride, we sense that there's something wrong with that. And those two things, selfishness, pride, which are really just two sides of the same coin, are enough for us to recognize not only in ourselves, but in all of humanity, that there's a problem. That there's something that's not right about us. The most godly people that I know at some point in time display some sort of selfishness, some sort of pride. It comes out. Maybe small. Maybe large. And so that... That's a problem because if if we're inconsistent, if we know that that's wrong, and if God has these standards, we need something. And what we need is we need for that wrong to be made right. We need to be forgiven. How do we we get forgiven? Well, we we come into God's presence and, and He's a merciful and gracious God. The problem is you can't come into God's presence unforgiven. But we need to be in God's presence to be forgiven. You see the problem? We all have that problem. In fact, God's people in the past had that problem, and and God gave them a way to solve that problem. You see, He didn't have the individual people come into His presence. He, He had them bring a sacrifice and go through a priest, go through a mediator. And so this priest who would follow very carefully prescribed rules to make sure that he was clean and could go into God's presence. And then he would take the sacrifice that the people brought and between the sacrifice and the priest people could experience forgiveness and could experience a relationship with God, maybe a little distant because it it was through a priest. In fact, one time a year when the priest went into the Holy of Holies, into where the Jews understood God's presence to dwell, nobody else could even be in the tabernacle at that point in time. Vacate the building, I'm going in. And he would go in with fear and trembling, Because if something wasn't right, you don't just go into God's presence and everything's okay. He's holy and magnificent and wonderful and doesn't abide with sin. And yet we read these amazing words in verse 19. The writer says, "...therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place..." no Jew had confidence ever to enter the holy place. And yet all of a sudden, the writer of Hebrews says we have confidence. And not only do we have confidence, he says in verse 22, he gives the first command of this passage, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. How? How? What is it that changed that would allow us selfish, prideful people to go with confidence where no one ever went with confidence before. And he tells us it's by the blood of Jesus. It's a new and living way which He inaugurated for us through the veil that is His flesh. There was the veil that hung between the Holy of Holies and the rest of the tabernacle and ultimately the rest of the people that only the high priest once a year could go in. You see, Jesus is the protector of our lives because He's both the high priest and He's the sacrifice. The perfect sacrifice. He he gives us what we need at the right time in the right place. And that's good news, and that is why, if you claim the name of Christ, you are necessarily Christ centered. There is nothing else that you can or should put your confidence in other than Christ. He's the only one that serves both of those roles that was the separation between mankind and God. The high priest and the sacrifice. And He fulfills both of those for us. And so, we can, as the writer of Hebrews says, draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. If we sit and think even for a moment about our day or our week or our month, we know, you know, I haven't met up to God's standard. And yet, the truth and the grace of what we hear from these words today is that your conscience has been sprinkled clean if the blood of Christ has been applied to your life. If you have, as we've talked about before, changed allegiance from... I can do it. I can, I can make it on my own to... Christ is the only way that I can come into His presence. And so Christ is the sin is the of our life because we trust in Him alone. But I have another problem. It's not just that I know I'm sinful... I look around this world and I can't find anything or anyone who's faithful. You see, I'll, I have conversations with people throughout the day, and you do too, every day, every week, and if, if we recorded those conversations, let's say for a month, and then rewinded it and listened to the whole thing all at once, what would people say that that you're your confidence, your testimony is in? Is it in material possessions? Is it in money? Is it in status? Is it in relationships? See, because the problem with every one of those things is they're not faithful. Think, well, if I just had a little more money... Well, the problem is, when I get a little more money, things happen like the car breaks down, right? Right? Or the kids grow up and they need more clothes. Sometimes they need more clothes when you, by the time you get them home, <laughs> right? They grow so fast. And so if 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 my confidence, if my my testimony, if if uh, if I'm putting my trust in money or possessions, that's not faithful. It goes away as quick as it comes. But what about status? I'm going to put my confidence in and status. Well, you know in today's society, every day you've got to continue to impress or someone else will come along and and take away the top spot, right? We've talked about that before. The news is constantly changing. We constantly need a new picture on the front of whatever news website you may go to. But right, if something big happens, within 24 hours, something else big is going to happen and is going to replace that news story. So for you to stay on top, you've got to continually be doing something to impress. And so status is not faithful. It's not something that's a bedrock that I can depend upon. What about relationships? Now, I'm faithful to my wife. But I promise you, if you sit down and ask her, she would... Well, she might not say because she's really sweet, but if you pressed her, she'd have to confess that in, in my responsibility as husband and father, there are times that I'm not faithful. I don't do the things that God has called me to do. I don't love her sacrificially like I should. I don't parent with grace and kindness like I should always. So even the best of relationships... If if my conversation, you know, if, if someone asks me, what gives you hope? Well, I've got this great relationship with my wife. That's what gives me hope. Well, but we let each other down. And then we read in verse 23, the writer of Hebrews says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. If my, if my hope is in money or possessions or status or relationships, he says hold fast the confession. And, and that word, every time it's used in the New Testament about a half dozen times, including the book of Hebrews back in chapter 3, it's talking about that first confession we made when we changed allegiance. All right, so I confess that you are and will be Lord of my life. I'm I'm changing allegiance, taking myself off the throne or whatever it is that I had on the throne. And God, I'm I'm choosing to put you on the throne because I know that I need your grace. That's the confession he's talking about. And he says, hold fast to that confession. Don't let go of that confession. Because the problem is it's really easy as we go through life to want to hold on to something else. For something else to slip in and become our confession. In our conversations with people, They look at our lives and they think he seems to be hoping in possessions or he seems to be hoping in money or he seems to be hoping in his prestige or the power that he has. He seems to be hoping in a relationship that's either actually there or this that he wants. His hope seems to be in something else. And the writer of Hebrews says, hold fast the confession of your hope that, that Christ really is our only hope. Christ is, is the center of our lives. We are Christ-centered people because Christ is the only object of our hope. Why? It says because he who promised is faithful. The end of that verse. See, nothing else is faithful. Money's not faithful. It doesn't stick around, it jumps out of your pocket as soon as it can. Status isn't faithful. Prestige isn't faithful. Power is not faithful. Tomorrow there will be somebody who comes along who is more powerful than you are. Wisdom, as great as it is, is not faithful because it can leave us. We do stupid things sometimes. Relationships aren't faithful. The closest, dearest... Most wonderful marriage. And those are wonderful. And we, the sparks celebrate their faithfulness tomorrow. But, you know, if you talk to them, they let each other down occasionally. They disappoint each other. There's not a, a married couple in this room who can look at each other and say, wow, my spouse has been perfect for the last so many years. My wife can't say that. But God is faithful. And we see that great testimony throughout the Scriptures of His faithfulness when He makes a promise, He fulfills it. But I have another problem. And that problem is, and, and maybe you have it too, see, I think tomorrow's going to come. In fact, I think next week is going to come. I'm planning on being here next week. I'm, I'm planning already, thinking through what we're going to do next week as a body. In fact, I'm thinking about what we're going to do in November and in December and some in January, actually. I kind of just make those plans. I assume tomorrow and next week and next month are going to be here. And there's nothing wrong with planning. Jesus made plans. Paul made plans. You read through the Bible, there's lots of people that make plans. nothing wrong with that. We're supposed to be good stewards of the time God has given us. And that means sometimes planning for the future. But you know the problem with that? Is that sometimes when I just assume that tomorrow's going to be here, I assume next week is going to be here, I assume next month is going to be here, is that I'm not as urgent as I should be in encouraging you to live the life that God has called you to live. Because see, if I don't get it done today, I've got tomorrow. I've got next week. I I can't get together with you this week? Ah, there's always next week. You know, I I really ought to call so-and-so and tell them something. I think I need to encourage them. Ah, I can do that tomorrow. I can do that next week. And we get comfortable with the slow passing or the quick passing of time. It lulls us into a sense of complacency. And the writer of Hebrews says in verse 24, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. That word stimulate is is a word that means to, to stir up, to agitate. It's used sometimes of shaking somebody who's asleep to shake them out of their slumber. Let us consider. It's a word that means to think about deeply, to ponder, to contemplate, to meditate on. And so the command for you and I is, we need to be thinking about each other, how you and I can stir each other up, which requires me to know you, which requires me to spend time with you. If I'm not spending time with you, if I don't know you, then, then I don't know where you need some rousing. What part of your life can could use a prod or a word of encouragement or a hug or a smile? That's why He says not forsaking our own assembling together. See, it's, it's not just well, you're supposed to be at the church every time the door's open just because. That's the rule. It's because we need each other. But if I don't spend time with you, then I don't know you. And if I don't know you, I can't rouse you out of your slumber to love and good deeds. Now, a lot of you come out of church backgrounds as we've talked about before that they expected you to be there every time the door was open. And that was twice or more often on Sunday plus Wednesday and maybe other times as well. And we purposefully gather on Sunday morning and then in homes various times throughout the week, but we don't have these doors open a whole lot. And so it's it's important when we do gather that we gather. That's not... That's not one of those things that, that the gospel requires. That I'm ever going to say, you know, you weren't here last week. Or are you sure you're a Christian? <laughs> but it's necessary for our fellowship. What does that have to do with Christ being the center? Well, notice what the motivation is. It says at the end of that verse 25, and all the more as you see the day approaching. As you see the day drawing near. What day is that? Well, that's that day when it's too late to be stirred up to love and good deeds. You see, there is going to come an end to the time when I can encourage you to love and good deeds. Either Christ is returning or you and I are going to die. And when that happens, I no longer have an opportunity... To encourage you as a brother and sister in Christ. You no longer have an opportunity to encourage me as a brother in Christ. See, he he wants us to see that time really is short, even though we assume tomorrow's gonna come and next week's gonna come and next month's gonna come. There's a, a challenge. To make Christ even the center of our relationship with each other in that He's the motivation. See, I want to stand before Him and I want you to stand before Him and we will stand before Him. There is a judgment. The things that we do on this earth will be judged. Fortunately, for those of us who have changed allegiance, who have said, I can't do it there's already been a verdict rendered and that verdict is not guilty. Nevertheless, acts, as we read in 1 Corinthians 3, are judged. There are things that we've done that are going to be burned up. And we escape because we have a, a great high priest. But I would, I would love for us to stand before God together and not get a sense that any time was ever wasted that we encouraged one another at the right time, in the right way, with the right words, because we knew each other well. We knew each other's needs. And we took the opportunity at the right time to give a word of encouragement or maybe even a rebuke or a challenge. Sometimes we need those things in love and in grace. So we're Christ-centered people. Because Christ is necessary for us to be in God's presence. He's the protector of our lives. We're Christ-centered people because He's the only person who's faithful. He's the object. He's the the content of my confession of my hope. And we're Christ-centered people because He's the motivation behind our fellowship. We all... Those of us who claim the name of Christ will stand before Him one day and I look forward to that day. Rejoicing together in in how You have encouraged me. I think, I hope that I get to give testimony of, of the words and the actions and the love and the grace that You've shown me. A testimony to whoever else will listen. Man, I got to hang out with some neat people during that sojourn on earth. And that's encouraging. The writer of Hebrews couches this passage in between a couple of passages where he's talking about that Old Testament system where sacrifices were offered over and over again. And then he says, but Jesus just did one. And, and so there's this warning after this where he says, now, Remember, there's no longer a sacrifice for sin. It's been made. And so when we continue to sin willfully, what that looks like is trampling God under our feet. It's, it's taking lightly what He's done because you're acting like you're under the old system. Well, I, I can always go and sacrifice a bull tomorrow next week. One complete sacrifice has been made. And then he gets into chapter 11 and what he does is he gives this long list of ordinary people who've done extraordinary things because of God. It's changed where they've lived. It's changed their relationships. It's changed how they responded to the world. It's changed how they responded to anger. It changed how they responded to threats. It even changed how they responded to death. And then we read these words in verse 12, kind of the the summation of the last several chapters, including what we talked about today. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, not only the list you read about in 11, but we think about the people that have gone before us that have impacted our lives. Let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. As Christ-centered people, notice what he says, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. So it's not just that he's central to our access into God. It's not just that he's central to any confession we may make of hope. It's not that he's central to our fellowship. As we go through life, day after day, whatever it is we're doing, the writer of Hebrews concludes that section by saying, Fix your eyes on Jesus. Make Him central in everything. He ultimately is. The question is, will we acknowledge that and will we live that out? What I'd like to do for the next five or so minutes is um, just give you a chance to respond to that in prayer. It may be that you recognize, I need to repent of something. It may be that you recognize, I need to be thankful for something, for what God's done, or or the fact that there are brothers and sisters in my life who who don't and haven't forsaken stirring me up. It may be that you just need to spend time um, asking God to, to reveal to you where you don't make Him central in your life. Maybe some area we haven't even talked about this morning. If you'd like, you're welcome to come up here and kneel. You can kneel where you are, you can stand, you can sit, and then but let's just pray silently, and in three or four minutes i will I will close us.